Hey everyone, and welcome to a fresh episode of Security Headlines. I'm your host, Philip, and today we've got a really nice, nice episode ahead of us. One of my favorite sites on the internet that I use almost every week is DearPaste, a pastebin service that supports temporary paste, a dedicated API, syntax highlighting for over 400 different choices, such as programming languages. And a new feature, which is really cool, is also user accounts. Today, I have the pleasure to have the a Django veteran with me, the founder of DPaste, Paul. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing well, Philip. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I'm, I'm super excited. But for the listeners that never visited DPaste, what is DPaste and why did you start it? Sure. Great question. So DPaste is a programmer paste bin. So if you do any coding and uh, are online, you have surely used one where you want to ask someone you're talking with online about some code you have or an error message you got or something of that sort. And you don't want to just paste it into the chat room where you are because it makes a big mess. Um, you use paste bin. So you paste it into the paste bin and you get a, a nice short link back and send them the link and they see the code. I created it in 2006. So it's been on a very long time. In that time, this was very early days of, of the Django web framework. And I was one of the early adopters and I was very active in the IRC channel on Freenode for Django. And we were having some problems with the paste bin that people usually used. And I, there were some new features of Django at that time I wanted to learn. And I said, you know, I can sort of kill two birds with one stone. I will make a paste bin as an exercise in learning these new features. I made it, I shared it with people. And then one day I logged into the IRC channel and my URL of my paste bin was in the topic for the oh, channel. Nice. So it had sort of become the, the <laughs> unofficial official uh, paste bin of the channel. And then oh, later cool. got incorporated into the framework itself. So when you're using Django, if you get an error trace back in development mode and you get a big yellow screen, it says, click this button to share this trace back on a public website. That's my site, that's DPaste. So it's sort of built in. So I have a extra responsibility to keep it working because when people hit that button, they, they wanna not get another error, they wanna get their, uh, <laughs> their trace back. So that's the sort of the origin story of DPaste. Well, that's cool. I mean, just Django is just an amazing project because it's it's a Python framework that has really gotten far over the years. And even if you do research, I was doing research for this episode, and people even have special job boards dedicated to to attracting Django developers just because it's so yep. attractive in the job market. Yeah. So why Django? Why did you get into Django? Why Django? Great question. Um, I was a the, web developer in the you know early 2000s and I was using a lot of PHP because that was very uh, very prominent there and it was sort of easy to get going and I was starting to build some pretty big things database driven sites content management systems doing integrations and um, I had a one day I was working on something unrelated it was a it was a script to automate some uh, encoding of, of audio CDs I had some audio CDs I wanted to, to rip them and I wrote a script to automate it and I wrote it in PHP because that was the language I was using every day. And I thought there's something wrong with this picture. If you're using PHP to write a program that has nothing to do with the web, you probably need a bigger toolbox. And so I, I'd been looking around and Ruby was very lively right then. This is, you know, circa 2004, 2005 rails had just come out in 2004 and people were very excited about that for good reasons. I like Python a lot and I started using it for data munging, doing database reporting and things. And so I was looking around for a, a Python based web framework and 
there were quite a few in the in the early 2000s. Zoop was a big one, who which still has some tooling that, that's around. People still use that. <clears throat> there was something called Subway, which was a quasi Rails clone. Turbo Gears. There's a whole bunch of things that were essentially very much like Rails, that sort of MVC model. You have models, views, and controllers and templates, and they were just sort of different takes on that same idea. And just by a fluke of timing, I had started a new job in the beginning of 2005. And summer of 2005, it was an academic calendar job, so I had the, had the summer off. Django was released in, in July 2005. That was its, its first public release as open source. Um, and I had been looking for a Python-based web framework all that spring because the job I had just started, I was the director of software development and I had to manage all of the web properties, included a marketing site, but also web applications. There was an attendance system and all kinds of other things they wanted. Um, and I thought, I want to do this in Python. So basically, I just grabbed Django as soon as it came out. Uh, I liked the way it looked. And it had a couple advantages that have, it's really maintained to this day, which is great documentation from the get-go. It wasn't the kind of thing where only the people who made it could use it. And you had kind of had to read between the lines. It came out with a full-blown, good-looking website. Wilson Miner, who designed the first website, went on to work for Apple. He's a very, very solid oh, designer. Nice. So it, yeah, it had, it had great, a great look to it. Um, and they had really taken care. Adrian Holovati, who's one of the one of the originators, had a degree. He had a double major in journalism, so he had an interest in writing and communication hmm. beyond programming. That I think that's part of what showed in the in the quality of documentation. So it was it was easier to pick up because it was presented as a as a complete package and a really well run project from the get go. And not all projects sort of start out that way. They sort of find their way to a, a more you know, a broader audience and, and more support and more participants. But Django really got a lot of stuff right, right from the get-go. And there was a good good community online that was helpful. And I went from sort of asking dumb questions to being one of the guys who was around all the time answering questions. But yeah, it was just good timing that it came out right when I was looking for a Python web framework. And I got lucky. I said, okay, it's going to be Django. And 15 years later, like, it's the dominant Python web framework. And it's, you know, people, it's used to build Instagram and all kinds of, you know, big, heavy-hitting things that it's been used for because it's it you know hits the sweet spot of fast development and a lot of startups i work for a startup accelerator startups use it because it's a great way to get a minimum viable product sort of a prototype and then they finish that and they're like you know this was so fun we're not going to switch to whatever we thought we were going to use after this we're just going to keep using Django <laughs> because there's nothing it can't you know nothing it doesn't do that we we need so yeah it's i jumped in at the right time and uh have just held on for the ride and it's been really sort of defining of my career i think that's just so important to have good documentation there is the the guy i think he's called this Inge. he maintains the man pages for openbsd and okay. he's, he's telling everyone basically no matter how good your program are if it if it if it doesn't have a good man page it's completely crap and i will yeah. never use it yeah and i think that's the yeah th that's a key term to it yeah it's, it's easy to underestimate you know, not everybody has an inclination to take care of that side of projects. It's not everybody's interest, but somebody in your project has to be interested in doing that well, or it's just not gonna, it's not gonna go as far as it could. So how was the, you told me that uh, Django was one of your first Python projects, right? So how was it to get into the Python world? Did you see it as a steep learning curve from, do you come from PHP? Well, I had done a lot of stuff. I mean, I had, you know, in, in college, I had studied C and Prolog and Forth and all kinds of other funny stuff. My first, hmm. my first paid programming job, and I didn't have a computer science degree. My, my school did not have computer science, but I sort of 
did everything I could. I took a course in Modula 2 because uh, there was a visiting professor there who had studied with Nicholas Verth, who created Pascal and Modula 2 and Oberon. Oh, wow. And so he was, he was a big Modula 2 fan, so I, I learned structured programming that way. And then, and just sort of picked, you know, I started as a basic programmer in the 80s. I, I got an 8-bit computer and I, I wrote basic, compiled basic arcade games and sold them through the mail. And there's still some, nice. somebody, some genius wrote a JavaScript emulator for these things and somebody else had digitized these <laughs> things. So you can actually play my games that are 35 years old in, <laughs> in your in web, JavaScript. In your web browser. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's so cool. But um, so, it, I, so I had a lot of the programming experience and I knew that I wanted a general purpose programming language. I really like Python's clarity. You know, it's, it's, it's famously easy to learn. It's sort of like executable pseudocode. And so it, it wasn't, it wasn't steep curve. And the other thing that helped was I made it, I made my way into it piecemeal. It wasn't, I didn't dive in starting to make you know, web applications. I had started, you know, years before writing utility scripts that process CSV data or did other sort of focused tasks. And so I had, I had plenty of experience writing, writing smaller pieces of offline code. And even my first, my first use of that, of Python at that job that I, began to really heavily use Django at once it came out was processing data from an attendance system that I had written using something else because I didn't have, I didn't have Django and it, but it was, I needed to manipulate some, some data into a structured form to deliver for reports for the administrative purposes. And I did it in Python. So I had done a lot of bits and pieces of Python. And so when it, when I dove into Django, I already knew Python pretty well. And that, that helped a lot um, because it's nice. Having, having seen people get into it who didn't know Python, it's certainly possible and plenty of people have, have done it that way, but they always reach a point where they don't know what they're, if they have a problem, they don't know whether it's a Python problem or a Django problem because they never really, they didn't learn them separately. So I had the good fortune to learn Python enough separately that when I picked up Django, I knew, you know, I was be able to focus just on the, the web piece. That's great. So. So it was, was it games that started your interest in programming or how <laughs> did your interest in programming start? That's a great question. Um, games were certainly fun to do. And I was, I was, you know, a, a very avid arcade game player. Um, but it was mostly because that was how you did more with the computer in the eight bit era. Oh, you, yeah. got, you got a computer. I had a TRS-80 model three, eight bit computer had 48 K of Ram and a, a disk drive that held, you know, 160K, 180K of, of data. And you you had pre-packaged programs. So I wrote papers in, in a word processor that came with it. And you could get a spreadsheet if you wanted a spreadsheet. Um, there are various other things. But if you wanted to do much with it beyond that, you were mostly writing your own software because there, no, there was no web. So you weren't going to download software from anywhere. You could buy it from the back of a computer magazine if there was something very Oh, simple. yeah. But it was you know, the computer magazines at that point, a lot of them were printed out listings of basic programs that you typed in yourself to play with. And so like I had a, I had a chess program that I typed in the entire thing from 80 micro computer magazine, because that was how I got that software. I couldn't download it. I, so I typed That's it awesome. in. So it was a, a very common way to, to explore the computer. You know, every, every machine came with a basic interpreter. I mean, think about that machines that didn't have disk drives or any you know external peripheral support you boot it up into a programming language 
which is really yeah. pretty pretty radical when you think about it. You know, if you if you get an off-the-shelf Mac or or Windows machine, it doesn't boot up into anything that you can you can program without a whole lot of extra work. But this was kind of a, a very very basic mode that everyone sort of knew was there, even if they weren't into it. And so I just I explored a lot with it, and there was a there was a basic compiler that I bought from the back of a magazine for you know thirty nine dollars or whatever that lets you write programs and basic executables from them that were fast and that's how i was able to write the arcade nice. games um but it also it sort of you know it wet my whistle for making software um so yeah it was it was basically getting into it was not so much games as it was a fun way to do more with the computer i lived in out in the country i grew up in vermont on a dirt road you know miles from town and so i didn't have a lot of distractions other than the natural world so i was able oh. to really dive into the computer pretty deeply. Wow. That's, yeah, we, we come a long way when it yes. comes to personal <laughs> computers with, Very much with the entire so. X, uh, X system and yep. stuff like that. How do you feel like uh, you got to experience Django in the, in the early days? Do you feel like the community and the entire Django project has changed a lot over the years or has it like maintained its uh, yeah, has has it kind of been the same? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly evolved so that you know the the people. If I look at the the mailing list or the the bug tracker, the names are different than they were you know five or ten years ago. But the spirit of it hasn't, and I think a lot of that has to do with there's sort of a Python, you know, Python is kind of a language for nice people. I mean, that's kind of a weird way to characterize it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it it's in my experience, it's a lot rarer in Python programming that you ask a question and you have somebody who's a Python expert give you a dismissive answer like you should have known that already or oh yeah, well, being you, an asshole. you're yeah. you're kind of you know you're kind of dumb for even asking that question you don't really get that kind of response as much and so that I that for me that spills over into the Django project culture as well and and has been consistent and so even when I'm you know if I if I take a look at the, the bug tracker, the mailing list, I see the discussions and it, just, it still has the same feel of people are, you know, sincerely engaging with whatever the question is and trying to solve it and talking about whether this patch is the right fix and et cetera. But it's, it seems to be very congenial and that's, that's part of its success. So it, it's changed in that it's grown and that it's changed in that it's no longer, you know, early adopters who are excited because it's a cool Python project that, liberated them from php it's just there because people are using it now for industrial you know things i mean I've, I've worked on systems that serve 40 million pages a day that are python the django apps um, oh, wow. which is which is a long way from even though it was developed as a cms for a media company that it's still a long way from what was imagined 15 years ago well wow. so, so you get to put uh, basically django into real production environments yeah yeah and it works that's awesome. So just jumping back to DPace, yeah. one thing I really love about DPace is that me personally, I, I learned programming with, with the thanks of uh, IRC. Yeah. Because there were no programming classes at, at my school. So gotcha. everyone on IRC just helped me a lot. And gotcha. then I were, when I was say, getting into some other framework, someone on free, the Freenode programming channel linked me to DPace and he, uh -huh. he told me, oh, hey, use this. This is an awesome site. So I see DeepPace as kind of a Freenode project uh, by Freenode for Freenode because it's being used so much by the Freenode uh, <laughs> community, which I just think is awesome. Right. Nice. So I think 
I think that's really nice. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of funny way where a pastebin has the potential to sort of spread virally because if, if you're in a channel and you're trying to, and you're learning, you know, some language and somebody posts a code snippet and it's a D paste, you're like, huh, I haven't seen that before. And now, now you've seen it and you're like, well, maybe that's what they use in this channel. So yeah, there is a, there is kind of a network effect there, but that's great that you first uh, saw it on Freenode where it was first, <laughs> first became public. Yeah. And I feel like Freenode just has become more, the programming sh uh, sh channels on Freenode are more lately become like, like just ask, don't ask to ask and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. When, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then they often link to a paste service. So you just uh -huh. use this and then paste it here. So, right. And, right. and a lot of, uh, I know a lot of people that explain Freenode to other people, they say, Hey, if you're going to use it uh, to ask a question, use a paste service and then just paste the, the code snippet to it. Yeah. But how do you feel like the user adoption of dpaste has been? Um, it's been really consistent. You know, I, I just keep a, keep a lazy eye on the, on the metrics. There's sort of one simple metric is how many items are in the database at any one time. The expiry is from one to 365 days. Um, there's, there's no forever pace just cause I, I don't want to commit to uh, forever. <laughs> if, I was, I if, I was, if I was to shut it down, but um, the, so that level is about 35,000 right now. It's, it's somewhat that figure is, is confounded somewhat by spam because spammers shoot their guns into any, you know, any available spot. And so ironically, there's no point in posting spam to depaste because no one sees it. I don't publish a list of the recent items and the, the, the keys are essentially random. So you can't, can't guess them or incrementally step through them. So unless they paste something to depaste and then share that link, it kind of doesn't go anywhere, but I think it's sort of like comment spam. They just have, they're just, you know, bots running on zombied oh, yeah. <laughs> computers yeah. is posting to whatever, you know, they, they find a HTML form and they post to it. And so I have a, I have an anti-spam recipe that looks for Django debug pace that don't have any Django debug content in them and deletes them and, and blacklist it blocklists the IP um, because what happens is some spammers crawler has hit a deep, a Django site that's running debug mode and hit an error. Mm -hmm. And then it finds a form. And it's like, hey, if I love forms because I spam them. And so it, it replaces the traceback content. Oh, okay. With oh, yeah. That goes to deep and, that's yeah. it. and that's great because then they've self-identified they've self as a spammer and then I can just uh, block list them. But um, the adoption has been really consistent. It hasn't ever particularly like grown or, or sunk. It's been at that level most of the time. I didn't, I don't have counts from the early days. The only number I remember from the early days is that uh, the first version used just auto incrementing keys. Mm -hmm. So I knew how many, how many times it had been used. And it, it was about 1.7 million when I rolled over to the, oh, wow. the sort of quasi random keys. Um, you know, that took, that took quite a while, but that was, so the, it's, if I look at the, the sort of traffic stats that my, my uh, host gives me, it seems like a hundred thousand hits a day is roughly uh, that, that's oh, not uh, mostly those most of those reads and there's lots of automation doing it too but that, that's the ballpark so not not a super busy site but steady consistent usage throughout the years oh that's that's really nice so jumping into enterprise uh, running Django enterprise do you have any like good deployment tips for people that want <laughs> to try out Django in production and want to have Great. some internet facing 
website or yeah that's a great question um i have a i have lots of a lot of tips in that realm my favorite new one as far as you know like trying it out because one of the one of the things that still is sort of easier about php than uh python web apps is php has a has a sort of zero friction deployment model as long as you have mod php on the server you upload the file and there it, it is it's executed. Yeah. <laughs> um, which has has its merits in, in python takes a little bit more but there's this service called pythonanywhere.com that i use for hosting dpace now um, as of about a month ago that's great they have they have free accounts they have cheap accounts and they sort of deal with all the infrastructure stuff so it's it's, it's platform as a service and it's the kind of thing mm. someone might use who would be also looking at heroku or digitalocean or some other sort of platform thing, but it's specifically tailored to Python. And um, I like I like the way they're doing it a lot. So that's as far as, you know, I wouldn't want run an enterprise app on it necessarily, at least not at the not at the sort of, you know, free or hacker level of their, their price structure, but it they, they're doing it, they're doing things really well. And what I like is it removes all that infrastructure stuff from your from your plate as a as an engineer, you don't have to worry about is the database server up or you know is uh, is the disk filling up or um is this right package installed for the os like all that's all that's done you oh, just worry nice. about the application code yeah it's good i mean i ran my own freebsd dps for the last 17 right. years hosting dpaste and all my other stuff and i'm sunsetting that i'm i'm, I'm changing the stuff that's going to be static sites is going to be static and probably hosted on you know s3 or or google cloud or something um and the Python apps can be served by Python anywhere because it just it's less overhead. I loved I like FreeBSD a lot, and I learned a lot about administering the server. But um, I don't need to do that anymore. So that's one is is uh, you know figure out what your find a deployment solution that you like, like the Python anywhere. And there's various other ways to do that. As far as um, sort of enterprise grade stuff, one of the a joke but a serious point I have is I gave a, a talk. Often a few years ago, and it was about you know how, serving millions of pages a day with Django, and my my joke was the trick to serving 20 million pages a day with Django app is you have Akamai serve 90 percent of those pages. Oh, um, <laughs> caching makes a yeah. ton of difference because your application server is is going to be doing some work and your database is going to be doing work and you want to sort of offload that uh, to the cache layer as much as possible. So pay attention to your caching is i mean that's good advice for any web app but um it's since python is quote unquote slow you want to pay extra attention to it although frankly almost every performance problem i've seen in python web apps has been at the database layer and not at the at the code there it's very rare to have code that's taking significant cpu time um it's it's mostly for for stuff i've worked on it's, it's almost always the database layer that's the that's the bottleneck so that's another thing too is is don't get don't get hop on the speed of your code because your database schema and the kind of queries you're running are going to make a much bigger difference in terms of performance both sort of latency and and overall um, throughput. Another thing that I think is is great to have in hand is um, sort of basic Python stuff like understanding how to do virtual ENVs and uh, pip installs so that you can have a reproducible environment that's local and on your server and is, is as similar as possible uh, to each other. And a virtual env is a great way to do that. I have a local virtual env for dpaste that's essentially identical to the one that's running on my server, the same Python version, nice. same packages installed, 
And so when I run the tests locally, I have pretty good confidence that they are, they represent the thing working in production as well. Um, so, so that's important to me. Um, I do on the, on the site, I do um, call out sort of what, what are the things that I, that I use in, in building the site that, that I sort of recommend. Um, yeah. Not all of them tie into uh, the application layer so much, but um, the, uh, the one thing that's, that's really great about Django, um, and this is true in different degrees about other, other web frameworks, but Django, because it's a Python framework, it gets to take advantage of everything that Python has. And it's not the only Python web framework. And so increasingly now, it used to be that you'd, if you needed something like, let's say I needed to be able to do proxy auth, I wanted people to log in with GitHub or with GitLab or with Google. Yeah, it used to be there well. would be a Django specific library that would do that, which is fine. But increasingly now what you see is there are Python libraries that could be used for Flask, they could be used for Django, they could be used for Pyramid, they can be used for sort of any Python web framework. Universal, um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're more general purpose and that means they have more contributors, it means they're, they're probably gonna- uh, More stable. Ch maybe. Change in less disruptive ways. So that's, that's another thing in terms of getting your your game on for for enterprise you know sort of uh, production software in Django or Python is learning the ecosystem of the of the libraries um, because they're they're essential you know they save you a ton of work and I I mean the the biggest the biggest thing I benefit from for DPaste is the Pigments library which is a code coloring library which is fantastic it's been around forever and it's really solid it's used by behind the scenes and all kinds of things that do syntax coloring. And that's how I have 474 different syntaxes that can be chosen. Yeah. That's well, that's the full slate of pigments choices. It's I used to curate them and only have about 100, um, but I decided there was really no point in limiting it. And so I just opened it up and, and now nice. every single one is there. But that's all because the, the pigments contributors did that and it's not, not something I had to write or maintain or, or debug. So. That's that's one tip is is learn learn the, the Python ecosystem um, because there's stuff out there that'll that'll be sure to be useful. Has DPaste changed a lot of its uh, Python libraries during the years, or have you run Django and Pigment, and has it kind of been the same libraries that you've been back it's, supporting? Yeah, it's been it's been pretty much the same throughout. the The very first version in ancient days uh, used a JavaScript based syntax coloring library. Um, hmm. And it only had a handful of syntaxes, really because I was making it, targeting it only at Django users. It just needed to do Python, HTML, SQL, JavaScript, and Django templates. Those were, and Django templates was the only one that was, that was potentially sort of fringe. Um, and I did some hacking to, to make that work. But I, I moved from the JavaScript based one to pigments because pigments sort of came on the scene and supported a lot more syntaxes. Um, so that was that was one change early on, but otherwise, in terms of the sort of application architecture, it's it's been largely the same. A bunch of stuff got added in this most recent rollout of a month ago because of user accounts. So I have I have more more third party code dealing with that. I have two different libraries that are helping me get people log in with GitLab, GitHub, Bitbucket, and uh, and Google. Um, I'm using a couple libraries, and on the about page on DPace, I, I link to those. So nice. those, those are new. Those are new, but other than that, it's very similar. I you know I switch things around internally. You know I make some code changes, but 
in terms of the library dependencies, it's it's been very uh, very similar over the years. How do you keep up to date with the, with the dependency versions? That's a good question. I try to uh, make sure that I have a, a solid test suite is sort of step one with that because that's the thing that's going to tell you whether a new version of a dependency works or not. I mean, luckily there aren't the, the the program doesn't have a ton of dependencies. It's not it's not super complicated. And so, like if I here, let me in, in real time, let me pull up my uh, my requirements text and see how uh, how big it is because um, requirements subtext is. Let's see. All right. Well, this a lot of these are dependencies of dependencies. So there's there's 88 of them. Um, but top level dependencies, there's really only only a handful. There's, there's Django, there's pigments, there's the auth uh, libraries, and uh, some stuff that I use for uh, the um, the primary keys, the the, 30, the base 32 keys. But almost all the uh, dependencies are things that are pulled in by the, the top level dependency. So it's very few. So mm -hmm. basically, if I want to, if I'm going to be making an upgrade, it's likely to one of those top level ones. So let's say, you know, I'm on a version of Django 2 now, and at some point I'll move to Django 3. That'll be a change where I'll spin up a new virtual environment, I'll install Django 3, I'll run all the tests and do some manual QA and make sure that it works, or, you know, probably also have some things to do where things that go away when you move to Django 3 need to be fixed. But uh, in short, I, it's mostly top level dependencies that are the ones that I change, and I'll change them and use my unit test suite to help me find the problems. That's how I did the, the switch from Django 1 to Django 2 and from Python 2 to Python 3, which I did all at the same time. I just, I took a week, I was on vacation and I just spun up a virtual environment, bumped Django 2 uh, up to Django version 2, bumped Python to version 3, and then fought it out with my test suite until everything worked again. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was, a bit it was hardcore, great. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that can be very troubling sometimes. Backporting large, large, large code bases. I buy, I buy, I ported a code base with like, I think it had sixteen thousand lines of Python two to uh, uh -huh. Python three, and it was was a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, yeah, especially like this. I think it's weird that they have this thing where uh, in Python two you can have like uh, if you do indentation you can have like a tab. And then you can have four spaces, but you can't do that in uh, in Python three. And also, the entire bytes thing is uh, uh, could be a bit tricky. Yes, no, it is very. I mean, sixteen thousand lines is enough to feel the pain for sure. I I have a a post on my blog, it's a talk I've given a couple of times, which is porting hundred thousand lines of Python two to Python three, oh, well. which we did at my job um, last year. Um, so about this time last year, I was I was finishing up that work. And I learned a lot. And it's the, the big pain points for web app, the strings versus bytes is, is a huge one um, because you end up finding that you've made a lot of assumptions based on what Python 2 does that don't hold over in Python 3. And dependencies is the other one. You'll find that you have dependencies, if it's a long running project, which ours is, you find you have dependencies that don't have a version that's compatible with Python 3 or that do something funny with it. And so a big, a big part of that epic that I led for the Python 2 to Python 3 conversion at my job was figuring out what to do with the dependencies that were problematic, including replacing them or dropping them. There were in some cases where we we let go of something because we didn't really need it and there wasn't a there wasn't a good story for uh, getting it to be Python 3 compatible. 
And so it's uh, it, it, that, that's definitely the, the things you identify are, are pretty common pain points. And I, I have a blog post about it and a talk about it because there's a lot of people in that boat right now. You know, Python 2 is, is end of life at this point, but there's a lot of code out there that's, that's still running it. And so it's, this is going to be for, for the next few years, people are still going to be grappling with that for sure. And it's uh, the good thing is when you're done, it's a better world. It's uh, you, I, yeah, I get to still absolutely. once in a while delete things like, oh, why is this confusing thing in this code? It's there because of some Python 2 Unicode problem that doesn't exist for us anymore. So we'll just delete that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's just awesome. So, um, so you've been you've been using Django for a while now. Is there anything that you think? I guess you've seen all both the the ugly sides of Django and the really nice ones. Is there anything that you wish Django would do better? That's a good question. I think the thing that I wish I would like to see continue to develop um, more is the asynchronous. Uh, requests thing. There's, a, there's an async effort that's that's sort of come and gone. That, in short, there's you know there's this whole world of, of JavaScript. The explosion of, of JavaScript and Node has really been been tremendous yeah. in the web space. And there's a lot of people who sort of came in on that train that take for granted sort of asynchronous uh, style of development and the stuff Node lets you do and the stuff that that the JavaScript frameworks also take for granted callbacks and all this sort of stuff that that Python has mechanisms for, but Django was built really on a, a much older model where the request response cycle is very linear. You know, the, the user will make a request, the server will render its response and deliver it back to the user. And so that's, and it's, and it's great at that. And there's a lot of things that are, that are really, you know, well suited to that model, but it misses out on a whole you know, single page apps and that kind of thing, where the the page is making tons of sort of Ajax requests to the to the back end and re-rendering parts of itself instead of getting a a whole big page re-render every time. That that style of app is much less common in Django world than it would be if the the async sort of modern JavaScript style of web development had been more adopted earlier. So I keep I keep wishing for that to, to gain more traction, partly because I think it's that's a matter of like whether whether the framework is going to continue to be relevant or not, is if it supports that. And I think I think it'll get there, but it's been a very it's been a very slow path, partly because if you have a great setup where you understand the server side completely, then you don't have a compelling reason to change it and, and get into all the, the async and, and React style, you know, component rendering and Ajax because what you the, the traditional model is good enough but that's for a lot of things it's not really good enough anymore so i'm hoping that yeah Django will will it adopt seems that like quicker with the entire python space we're do, do, do moving more into async and async with more adoption yeah. in python 3 of async and yeah it'll happen like that. yeah but to uh, so i want to hear what does the future hold for dpaste and what are some <laughs> of the nice uh, new features coming along <laughs> Great. Um, well, I'll make this my last one, but um, you know, in a way, I kind of all the new features that I've been I've been working on and, and sort of saving up have have just been rolled out. Especially the user accounts that I've wanted for a long time, um, nice. more res responsive layouts, which I which I got uh, via new CSS framework, HTTPS everywhere, which I wanted, um, and changing some architectural things behind the scenes that were that were causing pain. 
the that stuff's coming. In terms of features, you know, I, I do have a, I have a bug tracker and I have things coming. One is the colorization. I have, I have a plan to basically turn the syntax coloring into a, a Lambda function, a cloud function. Um, hmm. And when I do that, it'll be two things. One, it'll, it'll take load off the primary server so that I can do cooler things like pre preview the rendering live when someone's pasting. So oh, nice. Yeah, as soon as they oh, put nice. it in the box, they can get a thumbnail alongside the, the text area that shows them the, the rendered source. And that'll sort of be confirmation of what it's gonna look like, but also maybe if they're, they need to make a syntax selection different, they'll do that. Um, I'm gonna improve the, the syntax guessing. It's, it's sort of a, a low key feature, but if you put in code into the text area and you wait three seconds, it, it auto figures. Attempts to guess. Yeah, it. yeah it, it's it has a you know list of twenty odd things that it knows how to identify pretty well. But that should be done a lot better. So I'm going to make that more of a for proper machine learning approach, and also probably turn that into a cloud function. And that'll mean it'll and that'll let me foreground that feature a bit more, including maybe just having it depending how accurate it is. You know, have it be by default what to do, and you don't have to set a syntax at all. I have some plans to um, expand the auth a little bit. The, I want a sort of more general OpenID auth. I'm, I like the ones I have, but you know, Twitter login would be nice. And um, some changes to preferences, little things like I want people to be able to choose a, a, a preferred name, a display name. Right now you sort of get the name at whatever that's associated with the credentials you used to log in with. If you choose your own login and password, which you can do, then you get to choose it. But if you logged in with your Gmail account, or you know, with your GitHub, maybe you don't want your your GitHub Email, ID to yeah. be your the thing that's on top of every every paste you make. So that that's going to become a preference. So those are some of the things I'm looking at doing. Awesome. So where can uh, how can people submit feature requests to the page? Great question. There's a support uh, button on every page. There's a little hovering thing in the lower right hand corner, and if you click that, you get a uh, you get sort of a, a fact list. But the you hear support request or feedback and you, send in and that's I love that because people request things that are that are useful I've made some changes since the rollout of the new version based on user feedback and I get to tell people if they say hey will you ever do uh, HTTPS if they said that a year ago I'd say yes it's it's in the queue the next version will have it and so yeah I, I love getting uh, feature requests and sort of communication of any sort because I, I do this to make people's uh, work easier and so I love hearing about how that can be done. So yeah, the support uh, link on the site is the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I I personally have gained a lot of, I have a lot of good usage from DeepPaste, which is why it's so fun to do this. So to sum it all up, how do people uh, contact you and view, view more of your work? How do people stalk you? <laughs> how do you stalk me? <laughs> you go to uh, dpaste.com slash about, and there's a link on that page with my name that leads to my uh, my portfolio and then that includes email and Twitter and various other ways to, to uh, get all the way directly to me. So that's, that's the way to uh, reach out. That's amazing. This has been so much fun. You gotta come, uh, come on security headlines another time, talk about something else or talk about some new cool D pace feature. I hope we get more of that. Right. Well, Philip, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and I'm always happy to, meet a, a happy DPACE user. So thank you for, for reaching out and having me on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much. Right.